0: Welcome to The Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Sarah Courtney Dockett. Sarah is Managing Director at City Private Bank. She's the head of Women in Wealth for EMEA. Sarah is passionate about diversity and inclusion. She is also a senior private banker in the UK ultra high net worth team based in London. Sarah is responsible for managing 30 client and family office relationships. While they may be resident in the UK, Sarah's clients span the globe and she has a specialism in dealing with US connected clients. Sarah has 23 years of experience working with private clients, 12 of which she has spent with Citi. Now, in this podcast interview, Sarah starts off by sharing her most memorable experience with money growing up. We talk about why money continues to be a taboo topic, especially in the UK, women's growing economic power, how does the financial services industry need to prepare for this, City's approach to gender diversity and inclusion. Sarah also talks about the rise of female investors. We talk about female founders, female entrepreneurship, raising capital, women's relationship to money. And we finish up by talking about how women can engage more with their money going forward. I hope you enjoy this podcast interview as much as I did. I was certainly very, very inspired by Sarah's conversation with me today. Please note that this interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Well, Sarah, it's wonderful to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Shana. I'm really excited to be here. Now, before we get into the questions, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and also your journey to where you are today. And I wonder whether you can share your most memorable experience with money growing up and the impact this has had on your life. Of course.
1: Well, hello, everyone. My name is Sarah Courtney Dockett. I work and live in the UK. I am an ultra high net worth private banker here at City Private Bank. I also have the great privilege of leading our Women and Wealth team here in EMEA, covering Europe, Middle East and Africa. Altogether, I have over 24 years experience in the wealth management industry. How I ended up in finance started at a very young age. So if you could say my most memorable experience with money is probably with my father being diagnosed with cancer and dying within six weeks when I was 14. I'm the youngest of nine. And to be frank, my parents' affairs weren't in the best order. There wasn't an updated will. Probate, which is a process here in the UK to pass funds to my mum, took a very long time. And quite honestly, my older siblings who were living all across the globe at university, working, etc., they had to lend my mum money to survive. My mum then took the very brave step to sell our family home, which sounds awful, but actually ended up being a blessing as we, my mum, myself and my nephew, who my mum and dad were actually also raising... Then moved into one of the pubs we leased, and my mum took over managing it. As all my older siblings were away and my father wasn't there, this actually gave us a new lease of life because we weren't in the family home with this gaping hole. But that whole experience and journey to bring it back to money and kind of how it's shaped me as a person is, I just never wanted to be in that situation where I had no access to my own funds. I wanted to be in control of my own finances. I was very lucky I had a strong female role model who stepped up to manage the finances. As historically, my dad had always done that. And I wanted a job where I did not live on the premises. I wanted to be able to come and go from work.
0: What a powerful experience, Sarah. And I can absolutely see how that would have shaped your perspective. Why do you think that talking about money, especially in the UK, is still such a taboo topic? There is still so much shame, isn't there, around money and even for women who are financially self-sufficient or financially well-off.
1: I completely agree. It was quite interesting when I was doing preparation for the podcast, I was kind of Googling the subject and I came across a survey commissioned by Lloyds Bank at UK Bank here and they concluded that money ranks top of the UK's taboo topics it's even higher than politics, religion, and sex. Further than that, you know, (laughs) two-thirds of people are quite happy to talk about winning the lottery, but only one-third of people have ever discussed having their will. I think it would be too broad a brush statement to claim that women, more than men, are opposed to speaking about money. But I think it's definitely true that we need to foster the correct environments to discuss topics regarding wealth. I think too often women and other minority groups do not see themselves reflected by the financial institutions, and therefore there may be a risk they feel alienated, and this is something we need to change. I think for women, society has inflicted deeply ingrained ideas about who should control the financial affairs, and then this then leads to women having a lack of self-confidence and financial literacy. But all that is very much changing with the younger women I see coming through now. And and that's very exciting to see.
0: It is. And more conversations are being had than ever. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this throughout the podcast, but female role models are so important. And I've heard so many of my friends and colleagues say, just being able to listen, hear women who are experienced with money are confident to talk about money or have created a lot of wealth for themselves is incredibly confidence building. It's very encouraging. It makes them feel more welcome and included. So I think that's also key.
1: I completely agree with you.
0: I want to talk a little bit about women and the rise of their economic power, which I do. I like that phrase. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> and there are a few stats on this. So so the 2020s is set to be a very important decade for women in terms of how much private wealth they are due to create and or inherit. In the UK, in 2025, women will own over 50% of all private wealth. And globally, women are poised to inherit a large share of the $30 trillion that will be passed down from baby boomers. And at the same time, women are increasingly building wealth on their own, which is fantastic. Why is this important? And what does this mean for the financial services industry?
1: No, it's amazing. I mean, we are truly at a real critical inflection point. You know, for decades, wealth management has been a male-dominated endeavor. Not only were the vast majority of financial advisors men, but also the customers making those financial decisions were far more likely to be men than women. Recent studies showed in the U.S., in two-thirds of affluent households, men are still the key financial decision makers. But as you've outlined, this is set to change dramatically with this shift in demographics and why is this happening well women are typically outliving men and this wealth transfer is coming to the spouse and then the children and it's vitally important that financial institutions realize that and that it's important to be engaging with the spouses now before the ultimate wealth transfer event takes place because if they don't a key stat that I also quote is that in the UK and the US and I'm not sure where else the stat is valid that 70% of women will sack their incumbent financial services, house, bank, wealth management, upon death or divorce. And why is that? Largely because the women feel that they didn't have a relationship with that wealth manager and they weren't brought into conversations.
0: How do you think the financial services industry needs to prepare for this mindset shift, which is obviously from... The male customer to the female customer you know we've seen the research we know that financial services deems the default customer to be male they've spent very little time although this is changing now of course very little time thinking about the female customer i guess i'm curious before we get into the detail of this why is it taking such a long time to change
1: I think it's taking a long time because for some of the factors we've talked about, that wealth management has been such a male-dominated endeavor. Most of the financial advisors were men. Most of the decision makers were men. The recent study I quoted was that, you know, two-thirds of affluent households, men are still the key decision makers. So I think it's just been because of who are the people in the industry and who are making the decisions. But, you know, a woman has the same need and right to access financial resources as men do. I think where the industry needs to wake up is that due to a number of differences, psychological, cultural, societal, et cetera, women will approach problem solving and assess products in different ways. You know, for example, it's a common misconception that women are not risk takers and men are more aggressive with their investment decisions. I have often found my female clients tend to ask more questions than my male clients, but this is merely to ensure they actually understand the proposition in detail before they proceed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Many women report lower financial self-confidence. What was quite interesting in the McKinsey study is only one quarter of affluent women say they're comfortable making investment and saving related decisions on their own. And that's 15 percentage points lower than their male counterparts. Therefore, that's why I think it's important advisors do a better job of helping women meet their goals and build trust in their own financial literacy. Roughly half of all female financial decision makers say they feel unprepared for their financial goals despite having a financial advisor. So even those women that do have an advisor, only 50% say they feel prepared. So we really do have a long way to go. And I think advisors and the wealth management community need to bear in mind that Women really do have a greater focus on real-life goals. You know, yes, of course, they'd be delighted to outperform the stock market. But planning for retirement, health, not being a burden on the family in later years, their children, and giving back to society are all really, really important. I'll quote a study here in the UK from Wealthier Report in 2019. Women told us exactly what they want from their financial services more openness, more education, personalized service, access
0: to networks, and more women in finance. Really important. I think if male financial advisors don't know how to connect to their female customers, and therefore they're not able to create that relationship or build that rapport, whatever happens after that I think is likely to not have the impact it needs to. And you hear this a lot, don't you, from women, not just in financial services, any industry. You want to work with individuals who can connect with you, build a relationship with you. And you can only do that if you understand and you have empathy for the other party. And I think really between the lines, women are saying, look, you know, you're trying to advise me here, but you don't even understand who I am, where I'm coming from, what's important to me. There's no real relationship, right? And you're likely to then look elsewhere.
1: That's correct. But one of my observations is I've also seen and heard from my clients, you know, female advisors are at risk of doing the same thing. I think it boils back to some of the things you were just saying there, Yana. It's about understanding what your client, male or female in front of you, really wants and not just trying to run your own agenda, sell a particular product, meet your targets. I think it's very important to focus on the client, whether it be male or female, Mm -hmm. From speaking to my female clients, and we interviewed a number of those to learn from them importantly, you know, they want the best team. You know, they don't necessarily need an all-female team. They just Mm -hmm. want the best team. And we're finding that diverse teams are resonating really well with our clients across the globe. One thing that is very important to our female clients is that we have diversity throughout the organization
0: that sort of leads on nicely to my next question, Sarah, because one of the things that strikes me about City is the emphasis on diversity and gender diversity in particular, which you've just talked about. Your CEO is a woman called Jane Fraser. You're the managing director of Women in Wealth at City. So women are an important segment that you're focused on. What's allowed City to make the shift in focus to women as a key customer base? And how has that changed how you now operate as a business?
1: Well, it's fantastic, but it hasn't been an overnight process that, you know, Jane has worked incredibly hard to become our CEO. And it's amazing, you know, listening to her messaging and the wording that she used, we are a bank with a soul. I mean, we have Jane as our first woman to lead a Wall Street bank. We have Ida Liu as our second female global head of the private bank. And that's incredible. But it isn't just about diversity at the top. You know, gender equality is really reflected across the business from top down. We're proud. We've shattered the glass ceiling here at Citi, and 50% of our employees are women, 50% of our board are women, and we were the first global financial institution in the world to release our gender pay gap numbers. So that means we attract top female talent, but also the fact that allows us to attract and retain female clients as we're able to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Mm. With so many talented women within the business, we really are able to draw upon our own experiences as consumers to work together to think, how can we best serve our women client base? Our aim is really to be able to guide women and their families across the spectrum of their wealth, whether that's by starting to think about financial goals and how to achieve them all the way through to the implementation of you know complex, multi-generational succession planning but it's kind of back to the heart of it. It's the diversity of the team and working with our clients and listening and responding to what they need.
0: I want to talk briefly about women as investors. And again, I've got a little bit of research here. If women invested at the same rate as men, there would be at least an extra $3.2 trillion of assets under management from private individuals. And I really like this stat and $1.87 of additional capital into responsible investment. How do you think women investing and investing to their full potential, if you like, will change the industry and the markets?
1: I think it's going to be a phenomenal change. I mean, you've quoted a number of stats. I think the stats that blows me away is that by 2030, women will control 55% of the global wealth. And so with that, as you rightly say, investing patterns will evolve. As we previously talked about and is well documented, women do tend to adopt a more goals-based approach to investing, also, you know, very much aligned with their values. So therefore, it's not surprising that women are increasingly demanding investment opportunities that reflect their beliefs and causes that they truly care about. We've seen greater interest in female clients leaving the world in a better place for future generations and whether that be through ESG-focused products or engaging with philanthropy. A misconception that we've been trying really hard to dispel is that the opportunity cost of responsible investing is lower economic returns. That is not true. According to Morningstar, around three quarters of sustainable funds had first or second quartile performance in their respective investment categories over a five year period. So I think it's becoming increasingly evident that the power of the pink purse, and I don't like that phrase, Mm. but it's a phrase that's often bandied around. I really think it's going to fund the needs of tomorrow, not hobbies as previously thought in research.
0: And this ties in nicely as well to why is long term investing or taking a long term view in investing even more important today than ever before? And in what way are women set up to do that?
1: I think it should have always been important, but I think we're just better as society, but perhaps recognizing long term goals. As I said before, women are very focused in charge of, you know, goals-based investing. And one part of that, which I still don't think gets enough attention, is the wealth destruction element. What do you need to do before investing if the worst was to happen? You know, a spouse dies or you get injured and you can no longer work. I think as I shared my personal story, that is so important to me because There's a million people that can help you with investing, but if you can't even access those funds to pay for your children to go to university as they're locked up in some legal battle, then, you know, that's an awful situation to be in when you're already going through a very tragic time. If I look at my own personal experience, when COVID happened, as I'm sure a lot of people did, we had a lot of time working at home and homeschooling, a thing I never want to do again. (laughs) But I did actually look at, you know, my own affairs. And one of the things I found is that if my husband was to die, yes, the house would be paid off, but we weren't actually adequately insured to kind of replace him. So the additional childcare needs that I would need. And so when I mapped it all out, if it was to happen to me, he would be fine and you know, be able to afford extra childcare for the children, but I wouldn't on the vice versa. So it, I think it's really important that we actually annually review our affairs to make sure it is as we expect. And we do think about worst case scenarios. So I think investing for the longer term is something I think a lot of people are happy to deal with. I think preparing for the long term is something I think a lot of people still have to work on. I come across a number of people that still don't have wills, for example.
0: It doesn't seem to be a common thing to think about or talk about really, unless you have been engaging with a financial advisor or maybe you've seen your parents do that as well. I was also thinking with regards to this question about the fact that obviously inflation, you know we've been struggling with very high inflation for a number of years now. Inflation is coming down. Of course, it might spike again, right, depending on energy costs and God forbid, but whether or not we go to war, there's just a lot of discontent globally at the minute. And unfortunately, women are even more adversely affected by inflation than men. And it's tragic that women are not investing as much as men. That is changing, but it follows that women should actually start investing a lot sooner and they should be investing a lot more money to sort of make up for the differences. We know about the gender pay gap. We know that women interrupt their careers. They take time out to look after their young family or their parents, for example. So, Women need to actually be investing a lot more. They should start sooner. We can't stress that enough, really, right?
1: I completely agree with you. And even before COVID, I went to a wonderful event put on by the Wisdom Circle, an organisation here in the UK. And I was just a guest in the audience. And I think there was at least eight women panellists up on the stage. And they ranged from a stay-at-home mum, a barrister, a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher. And, you know, some questions were asked and it was who on the stage is an investor and no one put up their hand. Mm. Who has a will? No one put up their hand. And, you know, as the course of the conversation went through, the majority of them did have pensions. The majority of them did not manage them themselves. It ranged from a financial advisor through to someone's husband, through to someone's dad. But the whole power of the presentation was basically shining a light on the fact that we are all investors Mm. from a very, very early age. And so it is taking control of that and whatever sums of money you have, being very clear with what you're going to do with them, how you're going to educate yourself to invest and having a plan, really understanding what is this money for? Is it to buy a house? once you've bought the house, because as we go through our life, there are various key decision points. You know, my wealth in my 20s was very much focused on saving money to buy a house. Now I'm in my mid 40s. My relationship with money is very different. Very much thinking about, am I adequately insured? What does my retirement look like? What do my children's education funds look like? What does my mum's financial health and security look like now? Do I need to factor that in? So I think back to your point, Jan, I think we need to make sure that all women know their investments from a very young age. And the earlier we could start, the better, I think, from children's relationship with money in school.
0: Absolutely. And we need to be doing a better job at talking to our kids, don't we? The way that we talk to our kids has an enormous impact on our relationship with money, what we do with money, and whether we start thinking about investing at a young age.
1: Completely agree with you. Fortunately, there are a number of non-profits and other female-focused organizations rising to that challenge. I don't know whether you've heard of an organization called Girls Who Invest. Mm-hmm. It's a non-profit founded by a financial expert called Seema hirgarami in 2015. And it really has an amazing mission. And that's to have women managing 30% of the world's capital by 2030. So very much aligned to the demographic change. And the programs and the offerings that they have are really designed to motivate interest and inspire young women to join the investment management and greater financial services field and take control of their own wealth. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll see increasingly a rise of nonprofits. I think there's increasingly responsibility of schools to help support families in their journey and breaking down those gender biases with money.
0: Yeah, really important work. What would you say holds women back in terms of how they manage their money and generate wealth? And why haven't women been able to generate more wealth? I think
1: from kind of my experience, the biggest factor that holds women back when it comes to money management is confidence, to be honest. You know, it's well documented that if there's a job advert, unless women can take 100% of it, women are resistant to apply. And that's to do with the job. And if you haven't had much experience with dealing with money, then that can hamper confidence. I think for the older generations, I think the previous outdated social norms with how they were brought up holds them back. And then back to our conversation, that's why it's again a reinforcing point, why we really need to focus on the younger ages and providing that financial education. Mm. In regards to your question on why haven't they been able to generate more wealth, I mean, you and I were talking before the pod started about female entrepreneurship. And if we just look at that in itself in the UK and the US, I mean, it's dreadful. Female entrepreneurs get less than 2% of VC and PE funding compared to men. And if you look at the number of female representation in terms of C-suite positions at venture and private equity firms you can see that women in terms take up less than 10% of senior roles. And this is having a knock-on effect about women entrepreneurs getting funding. So I really think in terms of women entrepreneurship, you know, the financial community and society have much work to do in this space.
0: You know, if I think back to when I was raising funding for my startup, I think I I alluded to it when we were speaking before, Sarah. I managed to raise funding in the end, but it was actually from another entrepreneur who was in the same accelerator program as me. I must have pitched to three or four or five angel network groups in London, all male. Mind you, this is 2014, 2015, but still, all male, aged kind of late 40s, 50s, early 60s, and I would say most of them are accountants and lawyers and all the same profile. You can imagine what it must have been like pitching a startup which was aimed at the female market. So it's all about connecting highly skilled professional women with specific skills who were looking to work on a flexible basis to scaling tech businesses that couldn't afford a highly skilled CMO or CFO, for example. And they couldn't get their heads around why just focus on the female market? And they refer to it very often as a niche market. We make up 50% <laughs> of the world's population. I don't think we're a niche. <laughs> God, the number of times I heard the female market being referred to as a niche market, honestly. And yeah, and this is the experience. And this was, yes, you know, a couple of years ago now. But we're still hearing stories about female entrepreneurs who have very similar experiences, whether it's an angel network or a VC fund, the partners are male, very few women making investment decisions. Yeah, it it has a huge knock-on effect.
1: We've run a number of entrepreneur roundtables and just hearing some of the experiences, asking them, why do you think you can run this business by yourself? Where is your male partner, (laughs) male founder? Or women having, when they're in the pitching round, having to hide that they're pregnant for fear because they couldn't possibly run a business and have a baby at the same time. From statements being said, I'm going to ask my wife about this business and see what you think. I mean, would you say that to a male founder in a pitch scenario? So yeah, we have a lot of work to do in this space. I think another area that's really misunderstood is women's health. And when I say that, automatically people think of femtech health. You know, I've spent time being educated on this by a female healthcare fund and it's things such as clinical studies on standard cancer markers for our blood. So, you know, that data only started being documented around 25 years ago. All the tests were on white males. And so diverse women are even more affected. And again, we make up 50% of the world's population. Mm. You know, we're not a niche market.
0: It's shocking. I interview angel investors on the podcast and recently I spoke to Maya Ghosn and we talked about the need for investors and, and, you know, both male and female angel investors to potentially go through gender bias training. So they become aware of their own prejudice and the gender bias that they bring to the table. Because it's incredibly difficult to start a business and then you layer on top of that the gender bias and or discrimination that women constantly experience running their business. And it really is very difficult. And we need to take that layer out. And I think people who are engaging, interacting with startups need to be very, very conscious about what they say, how they say it and their own bias.
1: I completely agree. And one of the feedback that kind of female entrepreneur community said to us is that there is an onus on the wealth management industry, the financial services industry to work with investors, male and female, to get them to look at these opportunities Mm. to make sure that they are aware of angel investing and how they can support. You know, as someone said to me, I'm not asking for their philanthropic donation. I'm running a very successful business. This is an investment. But again, one of the questions female entrepreneurs have said to me is why aren't more female clients investing in startups? And again, it's to do with that journey of wealth. And I think it will change and it will change very dramatically with the wealth passing to women. But if women, as we've talked about, have had limited experience and limited confidence running money, then it's a journey of education. It's how do I allocate cash? How do I determine a strategic asset allocation mm. and understanding all those different components or managing wealth that a, a startup investment, a private investment is further down the risk curve. So it's very important that education journey covers investment products and opportunities all the way through to make sure that when this wall of wealth is in women's hands, that all asset classes are being considered. And so hopefully we will then see more a capital injection into female entrepreneurs.
0: Well, we know it's very much needed. And I do ask this question a lot on the podcast. How do we encourage women who have access to capital to invest in female-led or female-founded startups? And It has been an unusual concept where women with wealth, for example, have been used to donating money, right? To philanthropic causes, to your point, Sarah. And it's all about social impact because we know how important social impact is for women. However, this is different. This is about Helping drive opportunities that have been identified by a female founder that has commercial impact. It may have social impact, but it is a commercial setup and therefore you can also make a return. And as I come
1: back, it's 100% the onus is on education, making sure that the financial community work with women to make sure they feel comfortable to invest and they understand the spectrum of investing and what those allocations mean. I also think there's an onus on the financial community to shine a spotlight on these female founders. Mm -hmm. We do that. We have a great partnership at Citi with our Global Perspective Series. They've written a number of reports called Women in the Economy, focusing on a number of different topics. The most recent one being female entrepreneurship and what does that look like around the globe and what are the barriers and what are things society can do to address that. And then their next report coming out is again addressing that topic I talked about, female health and the chronic Mm underinvestment. And so we've supported that by just trying to support female founders. So in the UK, in the UAE and in North America now, we are running a number of founder events where we will have a topic and a theme. We'll bring in founders at different stages of their journey into a room. We'll cover a topic and in the room, we will invite family offices, private equity, venture capital and other entrepreneurs throughout all stages of their journey. Because one of the main factors women entrepreneurs have said to me is just building their networks. They just need access to the networks, bringing it away from the golf course into communities if they haven't come from that world where they can meet family offices and clients. So that's what we've been doing around the globe to try and support founders. And using our social media reach, when we do an event, we put it on LinkedIn, we showcase these founders to help elevate others and to draw a spotlight on this very important subject.
0: It's so wonderful to hear that you're doing that, Sarah. And to your point, networks are crucial. I think if you have come in from the outside, and and let's be honest, a lot of entrepreneurs come from diverse backgrounds. They have a very powerful mission. It's such a difficult thing to do to start a business. You do it not out of choice. You do it because you are very obsessed about solving a particular problem, And, you know, you may not have the family connections or you may not be born in in the UK, for example, and just having access to a network of qualified individuals who are interested in the type of startup that you have and are serious about putting their money behind a new kind of entrepreneur is really needed. One of the things
1: we have in North America, which I think is incredible, is the City Impact Fund. And it's only in North America at the moment, but it's investing in diverse founders, female entrepreneurs. So actually, we are helping these businesses get off the ground and give them the resources of city.
0: Oh, that's incredible. I just want to go back to talking about money and, and women's relationship with money. One of the things, Sarah, that really fascinates me is the different type of relationship women have with money, depending on the generation right? they're from or in, and whether or not they are married uh, or unattached. And it tends to be women who are married is where we see a lot of the traditional ways of engaging, which is that women do tend to defer to their male's partner. Don't talk about heterosexual relationships. I think most of the time, because they're so busy, if they do decide to have kids, they're so busy looking after their children, having a full-time job. They just think, okay, I'm going to let my partner look after the long-term investing. But that can, of course, be detrimental as we know. And equally, there is a big difference now. Younger women who have access to technology, there's so much more information that's available on the web now. You can start early, you can start to invest, and you can build up your portfolio very successfully versus women who maybe have always had somebody else to look after their money, and they're very uncomfortable now to step into taking ownership. What are your thoughts on this? I think
1: generational-wise, you are correct, particularly the older generations. You know, my mother was very dependent on my father, and that very much did change me. And I think financial independence does look very different depending at what age you are. What you want in your 20s is very different to what you want in your 40s and 50s and 60s. But, you know, for looking at my own networks, I would say there's a big element of being time short. So not that you don't have the skills, but you're so busy in today's society trying to you know, do the full time job, do the child care that you do have to divide and conquer. And that sometimes the majority of the finances do end up potentially being done by the male. Actually, in my house, I do everything, I think, because of my personal story, I think. Yeah. Um, and literally, you know, I've had to say to my husband, if I run over by a bus, that's where everything is. <laughs> and I do think if you are unattached, then it is just yourself. But I, I even say some unattached people who haven't saved, haven't thought about what happens if something happens to them, what happens if they're not able to work for a long time. So in the 2020s, I think every woman, regardless of age, regardless of coming from, you know, an affluent to an ultra high net worth, it is our responsibility to start our journey today. And everyone was going to start a different starting point, but it's about being engaged and taking that baby step to at least write down and think, okay, what do I have and what do I need? I don't mean need in terms of assets, but If I do have children and I'm married, where are our wills? If something was to happen to my husband or my partner tomorrow, what does that look like for me? Would I be able to go to the bank and withdraw money? I've seen occasions where females have had access to very limited sums, not for any bad means, but then the worst has happened. And because the worst has not been planned for, all the assets were in the husband's name. And then they can't even afford to put their children through university for a period. So it's about, When that very tragic time happens, making sure that you're not having to worry about stuff such as being able to withdraw cash.
0: We have to plan for the worst case scenario. We don't like to think about it, but we have to do it.
1: For me, it all starts with planning for the worst and the structure. Mm -hmm. You're kind of getting your basics done. Do I have enough insurance in case I get injured or anything like that, or to pay off the mortgage or my husband or my wife needs childcare? Do I have the will that sets out where it's going to be? So they're kind of the basics. Then it's like, OK, I've saved up. I have a home. What does retirement look like? What amount of money do I need? And then you work backwards from there. I think it's just so useful to have a plan. Mm-hmm. To not have a plan means when the worst happens or something unexpected happens, then you really are starting from scratch.
0: Yeah, And we know that close to 50% of marriages end in divorce, right? That again means that as women, we need to be really comfortable with money. We need to be planning for worst case scenario, thinking very much about how to invest. I see this for me, this is a really important point, I think because of my own personal background, but I think women mostly think that everything's okay, they're married they don't think about their money, but we know that relationships end and we just so need to be ready for that.
1: A hundred percent agree. I heard stories, heard from friends that when a divorce has happened, they really are starting from scratch. They don't know where the assets are. Some of these people are stay at home mums. They don't know if they're going to be able to stay in the family home. They don't know whether they're going to have to go back to work. And so, my advice to any woman out there is the earlier you start making a plan. Then you won't get blindsided if something happens and then you're like, how am I actually going to live my life? You'll clearly know what are the family assets, because some people I've talked to didn't know what the family assets were or even where to look for them. So I think it's really important for there to be transparency and for every woman to clearly understand where the assets are, how they're allocated, where the accounts are, what are the passcodes, and to go back, I keep saying it, but to have that plan because no one wants anyone to suddenly wake up one morning, be told they're being divorced and then be dreadfully upset and thinking, how are we actually going to live? How are we going to fund our lifestyle? What house am I going to live in? Do I have a home?
0: Yeah, yeah. If we were to think about a specific example, so let's say you are married, your husband has been looking after the money and does invest for the family. You've never really had the conversation. You don't know what the financial situation is for the family, whether your name is on any of the investments. How do you start that process?
1: I think going back to COVID, I think COVID kind of shine a light on all of our mortality And I think it's about just asking the question, saying, you know, I'm just very conscious if the worst thing was to happen tomorrow, that I don't feel very prepared. It'd be just really good as a family to sit down and map out how we are structured and to kind of review everything, all our insurances. I'll give you one example that happened to me. Mm. Working, busy, time short. We had an incident where an external gate got Dramatically damaged, and we were like running around looking for insurances. And we we're like, "Oh my god, we're not insured because it had lapsed." And it was just another reminder of having that plan going back to basics, having it all mapped out in a document somewhere, so that things such as insurances and etc. are renewed. You know, I'm just very conscious that lots been happening in the world. It'd be really good just to understand how we are structured and where everything is, and review all our insurances just to make sure we're not missing anything.
0: And maybe you can decide to have like a money date once a week or once a fortnight to talk about the family's financial affairs and essentially agree how you need to get up to speed to feel more comfortable.
1: I completely agree. And I actually refer to my Australian parents-in-law, you know, from a very young age, I think they would do something very similar. And I think, you know, when they work, they're now retired, they used to get paid on a two week cycle. So they would sit down every two weeks and budget for everything. So they would budget for food, for travels, for holidays, et cetera. And they still, they're retired now, but they still very much have that system. And so they've been able to retire early. They have a wonderful life are able to travel, but they still very much follow that two-week rotation budgeting cycle. And it's very much actually the two of them doing rather than just my father-in-law doing it. And my mother-in-law knows where everything is and all the passwords. So, you know, the first one or two times may feel awkward, but then when you get into a rhythm and you see the benefit, I think it's very, very powerful to do.
0: And I think the data shows as well that partners who are very open and transparent with one another about money, about their money affairs, certainly about the family's money situation, they have a healthier relationship as well. Yeah. Sarah, onto my last question now, what's your message to women who are at the start of their investing journey to engage more and to make a difference with the power of their purse?
1: Great question. Firstly, remember we all have to start somewhere. Embrace the journey and remember this is setting you up to be financially independent and secure. If I was to give some top tips, it's set clear financial goals. What are you trying to achieve if it's to buy that first apartment, if it's to retire at a certain age? Is it to make sure if something happened to you, you have the right insurance in place? Just be clear with what your financial goals are. This leads on to plan for the long term. Make sure the will's in place that you you know who will mind the children. Focus on paying off any debts. Try and build a rainy day fund and make sure you invest it. Don't just leave it sitting in cash. There's so many free resources around, you know, use them to educate yourself about money. Be open, you know, encourage and discuss money with your friends and your peers and your colleagues about what you're doing how are they investing? Learn from the people around you. We've talked about wills and insurance. Treat your own money like your own business, like your own job. You know, watch your money like a hawk, as I say, and then review annually. So I think if there was any top tips, I hope that will get people started on their journey.
0: They're wonderful, wonderful tips, wonderful advice. It's so enlightening and inspiring actually to hear your story, your journey and where you are today. I think you're an inspiration for many women. So I want to say thank you. Thank you for your contribution. And Yana, thanks so much for what you do.
1: I've spoken about the resources are available and, and this is a very important resource. The more we can get society, community, globally to start talking about this, the biggest change we can make together. So Jana, thanks very much for doing this. It really is an inspiration to others.
0: Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, Join the jointhepurse.substack.com. Dot .com until next time goodbye